Live from Utrecht, this is Ethereum Explained. George, we're going to make a special episode today. We're going to make an episode about the Tornado Cash lawsuit that's going on in the Netherlands. So we'll be a bit more Ethereum focused and also a bit more Dutch law focused. Yep. Uh, but first, you want to... You, you've been hacking something together. You've been developing some... What, what's well, going on? It's not so much about hacking things together. We have had support for Lightning streaming sats to our podcast for about a year now, I think. And some podcast players that support Podcasting 2.0, for example, Fountain, but there's, there's others, where you can select a certain amount per minute and then it just streams those Satoshis to, to, to our node, basically, or my node in this case. And But there's another feature that comes with that, which is called Boosts. And that's, I don't think it's fully developed yet in terms of specs and interoperability between apps. So for now, at least when people make boosts in the Fountain app, I can see them. But I think there are ways to see them in different apps too that I still need to figure out. And so I figured it might be a good idea, as other podcasts have done, to read some of the best paying or best boosts. But there, okay. are, no, there are no guarantees for that. So don't get any ideas. Uh, Wait, so, so, so you're kind of planning to do this every episode now? Is that what's going on? Maybe. Okay, well, let's hear it then. Okay, so we got a a boost on the last episode, 68, where we talked about RBF from at MRMR, and it was a whole 3,670, no, 74 sats. Ka-ching! ka called uh, with the text, great topic, very useful as a node operator to learn about both the RBF stuff and how core is maintained too. Perfect. Yep. Who, who was this from? At MRMR. Thank you, MRNR, for the, what was it, 3,000-something sets? That's right. Nice. Are we going to go out to dinner? No. After the episode? No. What are we going to do with all the money, Shores? I don't know yet. I'm going to stack it. Stack sets. All right. Yeah, so as mentioned, this will be a kind of a special episode because there is a lawsuit going on in the Netherlands about the Tornado Cash case, which is the anonymity smart contract on ethereum so this episode will be less about bitcoin and more about ethereum and dutch law i yeah, guess and we'll, we'll try to explain what you need to know to understand the case We're, we don't try to explain all of ethereum yeah nor will we explain all of dutch law but there's still some pretty obvious relevance to bitcoin i think and especially maybe to bitcoin developers developers of Bitcoin apps and of course, especially Bitcoin developers that may be working on privacy tools yep. because it might set some kind of precedent or so that's, that's going to be sort of the topic of this podcast and why we're talking about this. So if you're not interested in that kind of stuff, you could skip this episode, but if you are keep listening. Okay. Sure. First of all, let's start. So first of all, what, yeah, we were at the Proforma case last week. So what is this exactly? Yeah, so it's a hearing yeah. where the judge decides whether or not to keep somebody in, locked up for longer pending the investigation. And yes, so it's, it's mostly a formality. It's not really supposed to be about the case itself. However, because the, there was a lot of press around, I guess, and maybe for other reasons, they did talk a lot about the contents of the case itself. So it took two hours instead of the uh, official one hour that was scheduled for it. Yeah. So what is the context? 
Well, so yeah, the context is that Alexi P, as, as we should call him, was arrested in... Well, that's a that's a very Dutch thing, right? Yeah, we're, I mean, we're recording it here. So it's kind of weird because Dutch media will always use the first name and then the initial of the last name. But yeah, American they, media will only use the last name. So <laughs> in the end... Yeah, Dutch media don't use the last... Not the full last name of a suspect as, for as long as he's still a suspect. And even after that, because the idea would be that if you Google their full name later, you won't find anything. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was I was wondering what I should do as a you know Dutch journalist, but kind of working for an American publication. I was I, I just figured. I mean, even the free Alexi, what I don't even remember his last name right now. Like they, they're using his last name, so I figured I can just use it, I guess. But yeah, there, anyways, there are on. some examples of of suspects that use their full names, usually with permission from them. Right. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. the The thing is, he was arrested in August on some sort of suspicion of money laundering, but the suspicion is still was still very vague at the time. And then they get a certain amount of time, say up to three months, to actually come up with a f- more fully fleshed out complaint or charge. And well, they hang can on. Ex- I think you're skipping something now. So he was charged for money laundering. Why? Well, that was quite. Uh, that was still quite it. vague at the okay, time. But right? he was a developer of a privacy. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it was because he was a developer of the Tornado Cash Ethereum smart contract and some of the stuff around it. Right, okay. So, and that was a Proforma case. So that wasn't the actual court case yet, but it was just to decide if he should be kept... What's the English term? Detained. Detained for longer, yeah. Yeah. Which happened. So he's still detained now. So he's been detained for three months and now he's going to be detained for another three. Yep. And then... And then they just have another hearing like that. Uh, yeah, just not a pro forma case, right? So yeah. do we know when the actual court case is going to be? Nope. Okay. All right. So that's sort of the context that I think that that's the context that our listeners need, right, Shores? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on to this actual smart contract itself then, the, the thing that he was developing. It was him and two other developers, right? But these other developers are not in the Netherlands. So he was living in the Netherlands, even though he is Russian. He's a Russian national. Um, but the other two developers are somewhere else, I guess. And the Dutch prosecutors, you know, put him in prison, jail for now. Yeah. Okay, so what is Tornado Cash? Yeah, so Tornado Cash is multiple things. And this is kind of what makes the case somewhat confusing and also somewhat interesting. So the core of Tornado Cash is a set of smart contracts but you could see it as one smart contract, but it's actually multiple ones that allow you to put in a fixed amount of Ether. So for example, 100 Ether or 10 Ether or one Ether, you put it in and then you take it out from some other place. In a, and, and that's done using zero knowledge proofs in a way that you cannot, or at least not naively see which, which ETH going in corresponds to which ETH going out. Well, you're saying you take it out from some other place. You take it out of the same bucket, You take it out bucket, right? of the, the same, same bucket, but you take it somewhere else. So if, yeah. you know, in Ethereum, you tend to work with accounts. Accounts are just like addresses, but they're reused quite heavily. And so you would use one address, one Ethereum account to put money into the smart contract. And then you'd use another Ethereum account to take the money out of the smart contract. And the way you take it out is by proving to the smart contract using some sort of fancy zero knowledge proof that you are allowed to take something out of the smart contract. Yeah. But there's no trace of who took out what. Yeah, and I think that's that we're not going to get into the details of how this zero knowledge works or anything like that. This is just the general concept. Yeah, 
it works or at least it seems to work yeah i mean it, it, you know I, i'm not an expert in zero knowledge proofs my understanding is that if the zero knowledge math is incorrect then somebody might actually empty out the smart contract mm -hmm. that's sort of the trade-off depending on how they've done it yeah well w we can just assume that it works for this case that we're talking about and i yeah. think that's all bitcoiners need to know at this point so it works but there's a problem and the problem is fee related right like a privacy leak potential. yeah so so this contract you might think okay it could just live on its own on the blockchain and it, it does kind of live on its own on the blockchain and it does not have a backdoor on it so so many ethereum smart contracts these days have some sort of administrative override but they they sealed all that stuff so that part of the system is pretty autonomous and and it's just there but there's an ecosystem around it and part of the reason for that ecosystem around it is that taking the money out is not as easy as it sounds because there's a chicken egg problem here if in ethereum you want to do do anything with a smart contract such as getting money out of the smart contract you have to send a command to the smart contract and this command requires a little bit of ETH called gas in order to execute the command. But you cannot borrow ETH. So if your account is zero, then you actually need to, to put some ETH in it before you can then go and, and get it out of the smart contract. And the problem with doing that is that you might then accidentally link your original ETH to the other contract so you have one you have one public key or one address where you had your original funds you put some of that in the smart contract and then maybe you moved some of those original funds to another address just enough so you can pay the smart contract to take it out but then any blockchain analytics company could just see that it's probably the same person taking the money in and taking the money out so there's a solution for that and it's called a relayer which i think is somewhat confusing term but doesn't really matter this relayer is not as well it is I think it's partially a smart contract and it's partially a web service. And the what you do is you, you go online to some to some website and you upload your proof that you got when you put the money inside the tornado cache. And by uploading that proof and saying I want the money to go out to this address, basically to my new address, that service will then call the smart contract for you, so they'll pay the gas fees and they'll send you the whatever comes out of the smart contract minus fees. Okay, so so this is a way to solve the chicken egg problem. Somebody else is paying your gas fees, and there's some way to make sure that they can't steal more than they say they're going to steal based on the fee. Right. Okay. So that's the general idea of how Tornado Cash works. And then I think the next step would be so here we get sort of to where it gets interesting in relation to the court case. It, there, there's something going on with tokens so yeah because if we just look at relayers we can you could say well those relayers are taking fees so you could i think pretty easily argue that a relayer is at least taking fees is making money the original smart contract was not making any money however as far as i know alexi is not accused of running a relayer or at least not yet accused because they're still sort of drawing up these charges yeah as as we mentioned we haven't the, the court case hasn't happened yet we've only seen a sort of trailer <laughs> we've yeah. seen a trailer of the court case but we don't know what's actually gonna you know we've seen yeah but i would say based on the rest of what we can discuss in this case if you do run a relayer you may have a similar problem but that's not what this case seems to be about you think relayers are interesting but then the question is everybody could run a relayer so now as a user how do you decide which relayer to use and how do you actually use the relayer 
And for this, there was a bunch of other software tools that Alexi and others developed that basically made it easy if you have a MetaMask uh, browser or a sort of a MetaMask browser plugin to just go to a website and click on a few buttons and it would just pick a relayer for you and it would do all the complicated stuff that you need to do to use a relayer. And that software is kind of where the tokenomics come in. And I don't like using this word, but tokenomics it is. Because so far you say, why the hell do you need a token for any of this? And the answer is you don't, but you know, some people just like to build tokenomic systems, tokenomic systems, and so there is one. So there is a token called Torn, T-O-R-N, and basically what happens is this this little website that the users use has a list of available relays. And in order to pick a relay, it looks at what's the lowest fee, and that makes sense, but it also looks at who has staked the most Torn. So you can apparently, if you own these Torn tokens, you can stake them somewhere, somehow, and that'll give your relay priority over other relayers, at least to the users of that software. So that's not enforced in the consensus anywhere. So now you can say, okay, so there's a reason to own this torn token, namely for your relays to be more popular. So that's sort of a sort of a tokenomic story. And that's comes back in the case, basically, to bite them. Okay, first of all, Shores, this all sounds very Ethereum-y. Why do you know all this? Did you research all of this just for the podcast or? I've been <laughs> researching some of this stuff over the last few months because generally because of the my, court case. Yeah, my approach with a lot of altcoins is to ignore them until something explodes. But I have in the past worked a little bit with Ethereum too. So I, I have some background understanding of how it works, but I don't want to say I'm completely up to date. Okay, well, so... Tokenomics all sounds uh, fantastically futuristic, very exciting, but there's also something going on. And I think this is where it really gets relevant for the court case, because as you mentioned, the, the whole relayer thing doesn't seem to be the issue here for Alexi, even though he might be running a relay or not, we'll have to see, or maybe we'll see all about that. I think but so far they're saying he's not. Right. At least the defense is saying is not. So, but yeah, so there's a double function for the token, and that is where it gets relevant for the court case potentially, or it seems like it, which is governance. Yeah, I think so, they're, they're so it, both relevant for the uh, court case, but governance is the second reason why they may be very relevant. Yeah, so supposedly this is here we get another great Ethereum term it's a DAO. Mm -hmm. and there's a token involved that does something governancy, and you're going to explain us all about the governancy Ethereum well, DAO tokeny stuff as well now. Yeah, but this is where I have to disclaim that I'm ex not uh, super up-to-date on how it works, and part of the reason is because it's just not that well-documented. And some of the documentation got wiped out with the original sort of OFAC sanctions where lots of websites started disappearing, uh, which made it more difficult to understand. But what, Sorry, what websites were disappearing? Well, tornado.cache, uh, some documentation sites, everything hosted by GitHub. Basically oh, really? All, all so down on it the was taken down? Preemptively. Oh, really? So, so not by the government. It was basically companies like GitHub, which is run by Microsoft. Their compliance team just shut everything down. It was remotely related to a tornado cache. And some of that stuff got back. Interesting. But that made it a bit more difficult for me to study how the whole thing works. Sure. So, so I may be a little off on the tokenomics and some other podcasts maybe will explain it better. But the governments, anyway. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. 
how many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what, Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. So one thing you can do with it, the DAO basically just means you have a smart contract and the tokens give you a vote in that smart contract. That's probably the simplest way to say it. And then how the voting exactly works depends on how you've implemented the smart contract. So it might be that you need a full majority change. Yeah, so editor Shurs got a neighbor who's drilling holes in his walls today. So I guess we're sort of occasionally taking a break until he stops and hopefully you can kind of edit this out as well as possible yep do you remember yeah, yeah. so, I, so just keep going i guess yeah. yeah so DAO means that you have tokens those can vote and the way the voting works will vary depending on the implementation you could have say if you want to change anything about the rules then you need a 51 percent vote or you could say well it's 51 percent of the people who show up to vote stuff like that whatever one of the things you might be able to vote for is the little website that people see and this is where i'm starting to, where i'm not entirely sure if it actually works this way but i suspect it did the website you see when you you go to your uh, metamask browser to tornado.cache can be hosted on something called the interplanetary file system which is a nice distributed sort of file system out there and you identify this, this files is all, not this is all ethereum stuff right no I, ipfs is, is exists outside of ethereum oh uh, okay yeah Basically, it's it's just a distributed file system. I don't know all the trade-offs of it, but kind of like Tor in the sense that you have a hash of a file and that's how you identify it. So you, you give the file system a hash and it somehow finds the original file and presents it to you. And this is interesting because a hash actually is a checksum of the contents of the file. So in this case, you might have a hash that represents a specific piece of HTML and JavaScript and all this logic. And... Uh, like I said, the, the little website you get when you use MetaMask controls which of the relayers you're going to use, or uh, right, and the controls how the tokenomics actually pick the relayer. So this is not implemented in a smart contract. This is implemented in a website. The website basically just tells your browser, go and pick this particular relay. So if you control which website the user sees, you know, because you can decide which hash the user's website is going to look, look for, that gives you some control over... The system and in theory you can have the smart contract smart contract itself point to a specific hash so then you could have a DAO that can vote over which hash gets to be the real website for the end user and then of course if you control the majority of the DAO tokens or somehow manipulate the vote then well you control the website and, and that basically could be an argument to say that you are in control of a certain system or not Obviously, none of this has been fleshed out by the prosecutor in enough detail, and I feel sorry for whoever actually has to do all the tokenomics, both on the side of the prosecutor explaining why tokenomics are or are not actually decentralized. I mean, and I on feel the defense bad. to try and explain why they're wrong. 
Yeah, and I feel bad for the host of this podcast having to listen to all of this and try to understand. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I think it's actually kind of interesting. I just, I just happy that we don't usually make an Ethereum podcast. I guess. Yeah, I but mean, I want to clarify one thing before we move on. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have mentioned this, but it's worth kind of repeating this. So we're talking about all this tokenomics and governance and how it might work or might not. But this is c- kind of separate. F- so this is still separate from the actual mixing tool, right? So there, we're st- this is all relevant to the relayers, which is sort of. Yeah, the, the analogy I made yesterday in our preparation is of a lake. And so you could say the original smart contract, the original Tornado Cash core smart contract could be like a big lake with lots of fish in it. And that's where all the money is. But then the Alexi and others built a whole nice little harbor at the side of that lake that where you can rent boats to go on the lake, and et cetera, et cetera. But in principle, anybody can do that. They don't have monopoly control over the lake itself. And so if you shut them down, or even if you shut those those helper smart contracts down, because that's kind of how it works, you have a main smart contract and a bunch of helper smart contracts around it, the lake is still there and somebody else could use it. And in fact, you can just copy paste the whole smart contract and create another lake. They probably did also build the lake though, right? It's just, you're, they're just different smart contracts. Yeah, but, but so the lake, the analogy with the lake, I make it because that smart contract is closed. Yeah, it like doesn't have the DAO stuff going on. No, with that. and, right, and yeah. is, is sort of frozen the way it is. And the prosecutor even mentioned this sort of in their opening statement saying, well, if it was only a smart contract that was created a long time ago and not touched, we wouldn't be here. But in fact, there's much more going on. So what that says is that perhaps if you do make a smart contract that is immutable and you don't touch it anymore and you're not doing any governance stuff, then maybe you might be okay, according to them. Which, of course, is all just their opinion. It's not been, you know, checked by any judge. Okay, so we've discussed the DAO kind of stuff and the tokenomics, at least to an extent. Do we sort of cover that well enough? You, I think uh, I think so. I mean, we can cover some of the compliance tools they built, but maybe we can do that later as we... Uh... Yeah, so the, so the first thing I want to mention here is that... So when the, when his arrest, when Alexis' arrest first made the news, the general impression or the general... What, what people thought was that he was arrested for writing free software, open source software. Yeah. And it now seems, at least in the, you know, preview court case or whatever, the pro forma, or, mm-hmm. or, it seems that there's, that that's not really the reason, or at least that's not the complete reason, or that's not the full reason, because it seems like it has a lot to do with the tokenomics. Yes. Because the prosecutor suggested that Alexi and the other Tornado Cash developers actually own most of the tokens themselves yeah they're basically saying that his company is tornado cash that all of tornado cash the whole ecosystem all the tokens all the smart contracts are run by them just like it is a business so yeah so when this first made the news when the whole court case first made the news the general sort of assumption impression was that this developer was being arrested for writing free software open source software Mm -hmm. but now it seems that it has more to do with him owning him basically just controlling this smart contract by holding most of the tokens right so it has more to do with the tokenomics so to say than with the actual writing of software it seems like yes i think so because the the picture they're painting is to say well if it it i think the picture the prosecutor is painting is that 
it's not just a autonomous software system. It's actually a company run by people. And those people do some sort of sham voting. You know, they, they're basically claiming that all these votes that are happening are really just manipulated by the company. And it's all just completely centralized. And therefore, they are doing the money laundering. Sounds like a pretty good prosecutor in that sense to me. Well, it's but, a very going maxi prosecutor, I guess. Right. But, um, <laughs> it, the, the argument is still very vague. I mean, I would not disagree that the system might be very centralized in a way, but that still leaves a lot of open questions of whether they're really doing the money laundering, right? They're, they're building a system that is doing things. But the system oh, I mean, I yeah. want to be clear that I... I I, I favor privacy tools and all of that. Just the, mm -hmm. the sham decentralization. That sounds like that. That's probably right. It sounds to me. Is yeah. But based on you know everything I know of anything that's going on in Ethereum, that sounds about right. But like you said, maybe it was a maybe that's a very that that's certainly a very Bitcoin maxi position. So okay, so basically, the prosecutor says Alexi controls smart contract de facto and then he's being arrested because and they're making money but the making money argument is also again a bit vague because the argument from the prosecutor seems to be well the token is going up in value because of the money laundering and because the token is going up in value they can cash out that value and that's why he has a porsche oh, yeah they did mention uh, they mentioned the porsche so but this this argument car. again is is very hand wavy so we'll have to see how they really make that legal argument that just because you own tokens and they go up in value that that means that you're responsible for the money laundering in some way. Well, it's that's, not it's not an obvious direct link there. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So that's what the prosecutor alleges, right? That first of all, they knew that criminals were using their tools to launder their proceeds. Mm -hmm. And they were told about this. And then second, there were compliance tools available, which they cho chose not to build in, even though they could have. Yeah, so I right. guess we we can do a little uh, a little tour of money laundering law, I guess, which I'm not an expert on, but I can see various forms, uh, various legal gradations of money laundering, and one of them is about as simple as uh, somehow causing the origin of funds to be hidden, like that's enough. Yeah, and then that's what the law says, but there are some legal tests that you have to go through in order to prove that money laundering for for a prosecutor to prove that money laundering happened. It's not enough to say, well, you were hiding the origin. Basically, they have to show that the money was was used. The, the laundering was basically the thing that was being laundered was actually criminal money. So they have to prove that all or some of the money had a criminal origin. Then you have to prove that the suspect knew that this criminal origin existed or at least should have known. And then, well, there's a couple of other tests basically along those lines. Now, to prove that they knew that criminal things were going through, that was pretty easy because like lots of companies i guess have shown that was that's not disputed that much that there were some criminals using it but then i guess you could somehow defend yourself by saying well but we have all these compliance mechanisms i mean that's what banks do right they have all these compliance departments and they they try to mitigate the money laundering as much as possible and if they do do put in enough effort to mitigate the money laundering then they don't go to jail just because some money laundering did happen but of course tornado cash was not doing that at least that's the argument and that's a reasonable argument they did do two things. While they could have. Yeah. So I mean, that's what the court case will be about, I guess, right? Like, could they have done it? Well, that, even that, I don't know if that's going to be what the case is about. But you could say, like, well, there's 
you know, it's a smart contract. There's nothing you can do about money laundering. It's kind of inherent to the system. Whether that would be enough of a defense, we'll have to see. I hope so. But the counter argument from the prosecutor might be something like, well, then if you want to run a business, because it's not just a software, but it's also a business. If you want to run a business, then just don't use a blockchain for your money processing because you can't do compliance and therefore you shouldn't, you know, you should do some other business. Right, so they might say that it's okay for the smart contract to exist. It's just that you can't be the one running it. So maybe that could be the argument there. So what kind of compliance tools could they have used? Do you know this? Yeah, so there were two compliance tools. The one that actually was built, and that is basically a tool where if you're a user, you send money into Tornado Cash and you take it out of Tornado Cash, then and then you send it to an exchange. The exchange could ask you, where is this money coming from? And then you could prove to the exchange where it went into Tornado Cash and how you took it out. So basically, you can you can help the exchange see through the, the mixer. So you can selectively reveal to people that, yes, you were using a mixer, but this is where it came from, this is where it's going, and you can use the zero-knowledge proof to nicely prove that. Wait, but so this would be the individual users proving this, right? Yes, yeah, so individual users can choose to prove the source of funds. Right. That is not enough for Tornado Cash to survive this money laundering charge. Because you can say, yes, we allow our users to not launder money. It's like, that's not a very strong legal defense because you're not forcing them to do not launder money. Yeah, okay, so that's solution one, which you think would not have been enough, but it's a solution anyway. Yeah, solution Wh- two. Which you, which you mentioned, why, if it's not enough? Just for interest? Well, because for, again, for the, char- the, charge, the charge of money laundering is that you allowed somebody to hide the source of funds. And so the fact that they could, that this you you helped somebody hide the source of their funds and then you gave them the option to not hide the source of their funds. It's like, great, but you still help them hide the source of their funds. So it's not a solution at all. It's not one out of two solutions. Now, it's it's like, not a solution. If you, if you look at the traditional cases of, of, of custodial mixers, right? There are custodial companies that are mixers. Yeah, you can, of course, if, if I were to use one of those custodial mixers, then yes, sure, I could prove to my bank that I use that mixer and that this money went in and this money went out, but the custodial mixer operator is still going to prison. Because okay, other, other customers <laughs> would probably not do that. Right? That would be the argument. Moving on. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm saying like this is how you know how that's interpreted. Sure. Moving on, the other compliance tools was a little bit more enforcement in that they would check the origin address or the destination address, I don't know which of the two, against the OFAC list and various other lists. So there What's is... What's the OFAC list again? The Office of Foreign Asset Control. There's like this US thing that publishes bad... the names and, and addresses of bad people that you should not do business with, according right. to them. Okay. And and this is not related to the fact that Tornado Cash itself was on the OFAC list. This would have been before that. Basically, there are companies like, I think, Chainalysis, they will... Uh, publish oracles on the Ethereum blockchain that say these addresses we promise are really the ones that OFAC is enforcing and let's say you're willing to trust an oracle which I think you shouldn't but let's say you would then your smart contract could check against the oracle and say okay I'm going to refuse these specific transactions that the oracle doesn't like unfortunately that is way too easy to circumvent because you would just send your money from the bad address to some other address and then onwards to the oracle so to make a smart contract do compliance checks based on chain analysis. This is not possible. I mean, it's possible. It just doesn't work. But I mean, will a prosecutor care about whether it works? To just well, th- so this is interesting because the prosecutor admitted that it wouldn't work, 
And so they use that argument in two directions. One thing they're saying, well, the only method you thought about was so bad that you're not taking money laundering seriously as a problem because you only came up with these very bad solutions. That's one direction. The other argument is saying, well, look, you were thinking about compliance solutions, so you're admitting that it is possible to have compliance in your in your blockchain. So you should build compliance into your blockchain. So they're they're really using the same argument in two ways that are very contradictory. Right. Interesting. Okay, so if so, these are the only two solutions that you're mentioning now, and aware of, and I think they mentioned specifically that there were two. So, right. So both of them don't really work. It sounds like, at least. I mean, obviously, if you compare it to what is allowed, namely to run a proper bank with like spending mil billions of euros on compliance staff, it's not. It's not even comparable. So they'll never reach that bar. Right. Okay. So what is the relevance for Bitcoin here exactly? We don't know for sure, obviously, yet. We don't even know what the court case is going to be about exactly, blah, blah, blah. But given that there are, for example, some mixers on Bitcoin, you've got BISC, which also operates as a DAO. You've got Wasami Wallet, which is actually a company. Like, what yeah, kind so of, How do you see the relevance for the Tornado Cash case? In a, com in a Bitcoin context. Yeah, well, first of all, again, this is just what the prosecutor is arguing. They might be, you know, the judge might simply say, this is nonsense, go away. But one thing that's very obviously, I think, very apparent here is that they are completely ignoring the difference between custodial and non-custodial wallets. Because whatever you think of the Ethereum system, I think is very, you can very clearly see that the Tornado Cash ecosystem, even all the stuff around it, is non-custodial. They are not holding your coins. They might have some control over your software experience, but they do not hold your coins. And, well, there are Bitcoin mixes, too, that do not hold your coins. They're non-custodial. Yeah, both BISC and Wasabi, for yes. example, are non-custodial. Both yeah. of these are making money in a much more direct way. There's no t tokenomic shenanigans. It's just a direct well, fee. on DAO so. there is. Yeah, so the, uh, so the DAO we, we should on, cover sorry, separately. I mean because on BISC there is. I think we should cover BISC separately. Okay. So if you look at the, the standard mixes that are non-custodial, they just have a direct fee. Right. So that is actually a simpler case from a prosecutor point of view than this Ethereum thing, because there is no theater around right. tokenomics and relays. No, there's just a non-custodial mixing service. So yeah, if, if Tornado Cash is basically sets a precedent that that's not allowed, then I would definitely not see why non-custodial mixes would be fine. Yeah. Now, you can also look at something like a BISC, which is decentralized. And then you could say it's not run as a company. And probably perhaps more so, I don't know, because you'd really have to look at what's really going on, whether there's no shenanigans about voting or what those votes even do and where the money is going. If if you have a truly peer-to-peer -peer system where the only people making money are the people doing the transactions, then the prosecutors can only go after those people, but not after the whoever creates the whole system. But if the if the creator of the whole system is making money out of it because of some tokenomic shenanigan, maybe they can make that argument. Oh, they'll try. Yeah, yeah I, so I think to, to depending on where the case will go, it sounds like what will be relevant is whether or not Alexi actually could control what happened with the smart contracts, whether it was de facto a business, essentially, mm -hmm. and whether they were making money. And if the answer to these questions, according to the judge, will be, yes, it's a problem, because they're basically running a business and they're making money, then it will be very relevant to 
Bitcoin companies like Wasabi, right? That that would be my assumption here. Yeah, and then the question would be more like, is it also relevant for things like BISC or like Joint Market, which yeah, there it gets where they are, uh, the incentives are different. So one has a token system, but just because you have tokens does not mean that necessarily it's a business. But they could try some of that argument. Of course, the real targets will be the biggest ones. Like they're not going to go after something with a uh, hundred thousand euros in volume. Yeah, and Tornado Cash was huge, right? Like yeah, the, it was the, billions. Yeah, it was a lot of money going through that smart contract. But from my understanding, and I'm not very up to date, is the custodial mixers are still much bigger. So the the, right. the mixers that just take your money and then send it away. Right. And then of course, there's just people dumping money onto an exchange and then taking it off the exchange. That also obfuscates your your on chain. Well, not, not if it, yeah, well, depending on if they, who's doing the on-chain analytics, right? And whether or not they're cooperating with that exchange. Yeah. Okay. So I, that was a lot for me anyways. That was a lot of Ethereum stuff. And did we, so, and we covered why that was relevant for Bitcoin, I think, or is there anything? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered a lot of Ethereum stuff, a bunch of Dutch law stuff why it's relevant for bitcoin and i think that that's that's an episode then shorts i think <laughs> did, so. did we miss anything we probably missed a lot of things but i think this is a good introduction yeah i mean there will be you know to be continued Pro- i mean i don't know if we'll make another episode so, somebody might. will have to continue this but we'll see yeah to do, so yeah. as mentioned in another three months that's sort of the next point of reference for this court case and yeah in three we'll, months the prosecutor will have to make a more detailed case yeah Okay, well, sure. Thanks for diving into all of this Ethereum stuff. And hopefully we'll get back to talking about Bitcoin next episode. I think so. So thank you for listening to Bitcoin. Explained. Hey guys, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.